Hello everyone and welcome to the Tech UK podcast. The podcast today is focusing on climate and how the tech sector is responding to the climate crisis. With Quad 76 behind us, the focus is now on how the world implements the Glasgow Climate Pact and how can we make sure that countries are accountable to the promises that they made. This is a major priority for us at Tech UK and we encourage all of you to look at our Climate Action Hub. Uh, it's available on our website, www.techuk.org, to have a look at uh, some of the in-depth resources we've developed and guidance that members have to help with their own kind of carbon journeys. Now, we feel that kind of companies have a huge role to play and we're very passionate around the role of technology in helping others decarbonize. That also brings other benefits like more efficiency, cost savings, becoming smarter. But we also need tech to do more as a sector. We've got 40% of the world's tech firms aligned to Race to Zero, but that means 60% are not. And that's something that we really need to improve and we urge all members to commit to a net zero target. Um, so I'm Craig Melson, I'm the Associate Director here for Climate, Environment and Sustainability. So over the next 40 minutes or so, you'll hear from a range of our members on their own carbon journeys. We'll still chat around um, energy efficiency and how, how tech firms can deliver for clients. We'll have a discussion around in, the role of infrastructure and energy digitization. And we'll also have a, some really interesting discussions around the role of startups and investors in uh, getting climate tech companies scaled up. And we're also going to have a kind of discussion around the role of big companies reaching net zero in global context. So my first guest today is Elena Avasani from Oracle. Oracle is one of those companies you see everywhere but never really have to deal with as, a, as an individual. However, they're a huge part of the world's IT and network infrastructure and one of the world's largest tech firms. Elena is Global Sustainability Director, where she drives sustainability programs across the business. Um, so Elena, could you just introduce yourself and maybe uh, give us a few words on how you got into sustainability as a career choice? Thank you, Craig, and thank you for inviting me to, to the podcast. It's always a pleasure to talk about our programs and, and what we do to mitigate our environmental impact and help our customers. I got into sustainability about 13 years ago. Uh, I, I joined Oracle actually back in uh, 1998. So I've been with the company for many years and uh, initially in consulting, then in, in, in engineering and product development and supporting sales. But I always had a passion for social and environmental issues. Uh, halfway through my career, I um, graduated at Columbia University in International and Public Affairs. And I remember there was one class uh, in, I think, macroeconomics, where they were uh, looking at how uh, technology is really what makes a difference in, in an economy. Uh, and it goes ahead of uh, uh, public policy in terms of uh, uh, increasing wealth, uh, the wealth of, uh, of countries. And then I realized I was already in the right sector. Uh, and right after I graduated, Oracle launched the sustainability program. So I said, no, that's perfect. I was I was still working for them uh, at that time. And I joined uh, the team uh, that was founded by my you know, current manager. We were the first, you know, the two founding members of the sustainability program. And I've been uh, working uh, on this ever since. Fantastic. Um 
you've got a lot of back-end presence across a lot of organizations so how do you approach um, carbon neutrality so as an organization and with um, clients and customers you know oracle uh, largest environmental impact is in uh, the usage of energy in our data centers. So uh, there are three areas customers focus on when uh, when they talk to us about carbon neutrality and energy efficiency. The first is the carbon footprint and efficiency of our cloud infrastructure. Then they also look at our uh, hardware and how uh, it, it can enable their own efficiency and how we design our hardware. And then the third layer of conversation, if you want, is on uh, software solutions that can enable them to reduce their carbon footprint. So for us, uh, creating a carbon neutral and efficient cloud infrastructure is the key priority. We have committed to net zero uh, by 2050 as an organization, but specifically for our data centers, we have committed to become carbon neutral by 2025. We do uh, already uh, have 100% uh, uh, of our European data centers power with 100% renewable energy. So we we are carbon neutral in our in our European region, and uh, we are looking at decoupling energy consumption from uh, uh, from generating carbon emissions by going 100% renewable by 2025 globally. We are at 56% right now globally. But uh, the second aspect of the program is energy efficiency. We use uh, uh, the, the latest technology in terms of uh, virtualization, uh, energy management, cooling technologies. Our data centers have high utilization rates. Uh, and we have recently uh, run a study with a large customers in Europe, a, a rail, railway company that moved some of their applications to the cloud. And just by moving to the cloud, without even looking at the fact that the data centers was already 100% renewable energy, they achieved a 65% reduction in energy usage for that uh, segment of their of their business. So the benefit of moving to you know. Um, highly efficient, high computing data centers for customer is massive from an energy uh, savings perspective. And we know the most sustainable energy is the one that you don't use. As a kind of large IT and services provider, you obviously use a lot of hardware and equipment as well. So could you explain your approach to circular economy and how, I guess, closing the loop uh, delivers carbon and energy savings? We, we looked at circularity um, years back and uh, launched what we call a design for the environment program. And our uh, product managers and, and, and product designers uh, are trained to embed sustainability capabilities in the hardware they, they design. The key uh, aspect when you design uh, servers is looking at energy efficiency. Contrary to other electronics, the, if you look at the life cycle of a server, 90% of the, the carbon footprint uh, of, um, of the machine is linked to energy usage. So working on energy efficiency capabilities is where uh, you achieve the, the highest benefit in terms of energy efficiency and reducing carbon footprint. Then uh, uh, the designers are also trained into selecting materials that can be easily recovered and recycled. So you close the loop of material in, in the life cycle because you want to achieve zero waste landfill. 
And in our uh, in our program, we also enable uh, customers to return their their obsolete hardware at the end of the life cycle. And we offer a carbon assessment tool that helps them measure the benefits of uh, switching from obsolete servers to a uh, highly efficient uh, latest generation servers so that they are um, incentivized into you know, changing their, their infrastructure as well. Thank you. And um, obviously, as a um, B2B provider, you have to work quite closely with your own customers and partners. So what are they thinking about when they come to you saying, we want to be more sustainable? How do you approach that from a sort of client delivery uh, perspective and what sort of things are the highest priorities for those clients? The clients that come to us um, looking at applications, like, you know, of course, they look at the cloud infrastructure benefits, the, the efficiency of the hardware, but we, as an organization, we have a wide range of, of tools that are used by customers to manage their, their, their own businesses, right? Financial supply chain management, analytics, uh, human capital management. Uh, what what happens when we're starting a conversation with customers is we have to identify what is material to them. Each sector has different needs. So you have to sort of map their needs with the, with the, you know, with the capabilities we have. And then they're looking at uh, understanding when, where the data resides in their supply chain management tool, in their financials or HCM tool so that we can help them identify the you know, various KPIs, extract them and leverage our analytics capabilities to measure their performance. And we have a uh, you know, really large number of uh, uh, scenarios and use cases we can, we can uh, share with them. We have a customer uh, in, uh, in, um, in the logistics space that is leveraging cloud logistics to measure the carbon footprint of their fleet and optimize the fleet uh, routes so that they can minimize the carbon footprint. We have a customer that is selling, like Delight, for example, is a customer that sells solar uh, installations and tools in emerging markets. And with our analytics tools, they can map the presence of customers so they can identify the best regions and the best customers where they position their tools, therefore, reducing the global carbon footprint just by installing you know, solar capabilities. Uh, there, are, um, uh, there is a strong focus on supply chains. Our uh, track and trace uh, tools help customers to really monitor uh, the use of materials across their you know, value chain with you know, mapping their value chain thanks to also IoT capabilities and then track the entire um, uh, supply chain carbon footprint thanks to these these tools it's uh, it's really uh, interesting we are also developing new tools based on the feedback that customers are giving us uh, because obviously there are new, new requ requirements in terms of supply chain transparency coming through new requirements in the financial services uh, industry to report against the eu taxonomy and other regulations that we are expecting so there is also that effort in, in our product development team and consulting teams to look at how we can map these requirements moving forward. That's fantastic. Um, and before we go, it would be great to get your perspective on what do you think the biggest sort of sustainability trend is for tech, probably in the next year or two. Obviously, there's been a lot of focus around COP26, but what do you think the kind of 
biggest trend will be for tech firms? I think what I just said, you know, enabling customers to track their environmental performance. Mm -hmm. I have seen in the last uh, 12 months an increased number of customers really looking at moving out of uh, Excel and uh, looking at more, uh, nothing against Excel, fantastic technology, you know, but, but at this point to respond to regulatory pressures and to the complexity of, of the challenge we have in front of us, we really need more sophisticated uh, capabilities. So embedding uh, artificial intelligence uh, capabilities in analytics uh, to identify what if scenarios and uh, leveraging blockchain, uh, but primarily is really uh, the need for companies to have a holistic view of ESG and understand their, their carbon footprint uh, at, you know, at the granular level so they can implement you know, changes in business models and processes, right? So, and I, and, I, and I see in the market, you know, a lot of our peers are coming out with solutions and we're working on solutions. So that I think in the next couple of years is going to be a new market developing. Fantastic. Well, Elena, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really wonderful talking to you and thank you very much. Ooh, thank you. So in our next section, we're going to be speaking to one of our leading members on sort of climate and sustainability, and it's um, Helen Grundy from Hitachi. Hitachi, a very uh, large company with it's very extensive profile across the UK and globally. And Helen is an environmental specialist and has been very active across the Tech UK environmental community. So um, just before we start um, really going into the detail on the role Hitachi is playing and the role of infrastructure in delivering decarbonisation objectives, it would just be good if you could just give a quick um, few lines really about yourself and how you found yourself working in sustainability really. Yeah, hi, Craig. Thank you for having me. Um, so, yeah, I work in sustainability and environment at Hitachi. I've been here now for approximately seven or eight years. Um, and my role involves working not just with our UK companies, but with Hitachi Group businesses across Europe and also with our global headquarters in Tokyo. Um, so I've been in sustainability and environment for my whole career, starting off in consultancy. And then I actually worked in um, the water utilities industry in the UK. So worked for Seven Trent, working on environment and um, sustainability roles and seeing how actually environment um, morphed into CSR, which then also kind of subsequently morphed into sustainability. And I think we're all still a bit confused sometimes about the terminology we use um, for CSR or sustainability, but generally I, I see it as encompassing the whole realms of environment, social and economic. Um, and then I moved over actually to Hitachi Group Businesses, Group Business in the UK focused on building new nuclear um, and subsequently moved to Hitachi Europe. So I've always been involved. Um, it's a passion and, you know, it's it's nice to be involved in a role where you feel you can make some difference, not just to the company you work within, but also to society at large. Thank you for that, Helen. If if we could just quickly touch on what Hitachi is doing in the infrastructure space, because obviously mobility, energy, transport, 
these are all big contributors to UK and any global emissions. So it'd be good and interesting to get your view about what Hitachi and probably digital tech more generally can do in those areas. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, it's interesting you mention all those points for Hitachi because I think often um, when people think about Hitachi, they still think of Hitachi stereos or they might have some other Hitachi consumer product. But actually, you're right, we work across a wide range of sectors, be it mobility, energy, um, yeah, across infrastructure in the automotive industry. And, and that actually is a real benefit for us because not only do we have um, expertise around IT and digitization, but we also have that operational experience. And I think that's what we see as being unique about Hitachi is when um, we're looking at some of these big global um, societal issues that we face, such as climate change, you know, we're able to bring together a, a wealth of experience, be it digitization and the IT along with our operational experience. And yeah, no, absolutely. We're, we're very much focusing around our environment business um, and how Hitachi can work with governments, cities, customers to help them innovate and reduce their climate impacts. And that's really been one of our, our core focuses. And also one of the reasons why we um, were a principal partner at COP26, because actually, you know, we, we saw that as a really excellent opportunity to show how Hitachi can collaborate across those different players um, and really actually drive action to help us solve some of the global crises we're, you know, we're part of at the moment. In terms of kind of digitization, I don't think we would be able to solve the climate crisis without digitization. I think it's going to be incredibly important, you know, on a whole raft of um, levels, whether as you said, that's across infrastructure, so smart mobility, smart energy systems, right down to, um, I guess, more specifics around energy efficiency um, in manufacturing, making different systems more efficient. And what I constantly heard during COP was about the importance of data. And ultimately, um, you know, when, when we're talking about data, we can have huge amounts of that, but what we need is then the digitization and the IOT to, to enable us to actually use that data and use it to help change or make systems more efficient, make us able to react um, in a much quicker way to some of the, the different problems we're seeing and just actually all around, you know, putting in place much more efficient um, systems. So we in particular are looking at um, EV in the UK. We had a trial, um, Optimise Prime, which was the is the world's largest fleet trial in terms of EV. Um, and again, providing those digital platforms to help understand, you know, the data that's coming out of when cars are being used. How can we use um, the batteries and the energy that's being um, held within those fleets at times, how can we utilize depots more efficiently? So when they're not being um, used to charge the fleets, can they be used as a public service? And then how do we combine that um, with much wider mobility services? So 
you know, you're beginning to look much more about a whole systems change and use data and digitization to help us change at a system level rather than at a much smaller um, micro level, which ultimately, you know, if we are going to meet our goals around climate change, we need to see big systemic change, not just, um, you know, lots of little incremental changes. Thank you, Helen. Uh, that's great insight. Now, obviously, you've got experience in the energy sector. Hitachi obviously has great experience in the energy sector. What do you think the kind of cultural challenges are? What's the what's been the culture like in trying to getting infrastructure to adopt digital? I would say actually, you know, we have Hitachi Energy, which is now a core part of the Hitachi business. I think actually they're they're very much at the forefront of pushing forwards digitization within the energy sector. And I don't necessarily think it's um, a cultural issue. I think it comes down to a whole range of issues within business that might need a new look. So how, how are you know new business models? How do we approach business in a, in a slightly different way, looking at more um, products as a service rather than just selling products? So I think it, it needs a it's not necessarily a cultural but it's I think people are keen and want to make the changes it's about making sure we have the processes in place and to allow those changes to happen. Thank you and um, just one last question it's uh, obviously the core principal partner of COP26 what do you reckon your kind of big key takeaway is on the role of tech obviously there's been a lot of focus on finance on just transition on the kind of core themes, but what do you think the takeaway from COP26 is for tech companies? Yeah, I I think, well, there were two, two things that I personally took in relation to kind of tech, but also more widely. I think the first is the fact that the technology is there. We just need to be able to implement and implement at scale and then link to what we were saying about energy, about how that's financed. So I think those that was the kind of the first key message. We actually know what we kind of need to do. We just need to be able to do it. And then the other the other big piece is definitely around collaboration. So how do we bring together the relevant players that are needed to allow us to um, implement that technology, the you know, the digitization? It can't be done standalone. So we have to begin to collaborate and we have to begin to collaborate on scale. So how do we put in place the right structures, you know, the right coalitions to allow us to collaborate on the scale where we're going to make real difference? Thank you very much, Helen. That was great. Yeah, so thank you to Helen for sharing her experiences there. This next section is going to hear from two of the most exciting climate tech companies in the UK. And this section is really going to look at how the investment community is viewing climate, how are climate tech companies scaling up, and what sort of tips and advice um, from some great founders. So we've got Will Wells from Hummingbird and Vera Johnson from Circular. So Will, if you could just introduce yourself and Circular, that would be great. And if Vera could follow on. I'm Will Wells, and I'm the founder at Humming Technologies, which um, is a business that uses uh, deep learning models, remote sensing, i.e. satellite data, 
to measure, monitor, report and verify uh, climate positive regenerative agricultural switches from space. Um, remembering that food and agriculture accounts for, I think, almost 20% of greenhouse gas emissions. It also has the amazing potential to be a trillion metric ton carbon sink. And our role really is to be an audit from space to try and facilitate that. Um, and, and, and really so that food can be something that goes from being a net emitter, to possibly a net positive activity um, on our land, uh, affecting biodiversity, natural capital, um, and trying to stop deforestation upstream. Fantastic. Vera. Hi, everyone. I'm Vera Johnson. I'm the co-founder of Circular. Uh, we're a technology platform that enables manufacturers and recyclers to trace the raw materials in their supply chains such that they can understand the, um, the provenance of that material and the physical change of state as it goes through the manufacturing supply chain to become an end product. And through that process, we're capturing the direct scope one, the bought in scope two, and the inherited scope three emissions, which means that by creating that uh, digital dynamic, almost near time chain of custody, we're able to provide huge amounts of data and touch points so that the end OEMs, the tier one suppliers, the recyclers can make informed decisions about where changes need to happen in their supply chain, but also collaborate with their supply chain partners so they can make informed decisions about um, changing manufacturing or recycling processes in order to reduce their emissions, which in itself is from a climate tech point of view, we never used to call ourselves a climate tech company, but we realized very quickly that climate tech was effectively the outcome of what clients are using our platform for. Great, that's good stuff. So, I mean, as kind of climate tech um, um, founders, um, how have you found the investment landscape? Like, obviously, lots of people talking about the investment opportunities, ESG focused funds. How have you guys found it as a two organizations actually seeking that investment and will only from your point of view as an investor yourself? I mean, look, we're, we're reasonably similar in size, us and Circular, and I'm, by the way, I'm a massive fan. And, and, you know, I think if you're raising money for a climate tech venture in 2021, you do have macroeconomic momentum and funding on your side. $50 billion has gone into space this year, and I can count more new climate tech VC funds having been raised. Um, I was caught on the wrong side of the boom and bust in 20, well, 2006 to 11, when the first sort of clean tech came and went. Um, but I think it's different now. The, the fundamentals are in place. Um, the corporate will is there. And quite frankly, the technology and the science that's on display is, is phenomenal. Yeah, and, and similar to Will, um, again, I'm a huge fan of Hummingbird, and I'm sure we're going to collaborate at some point in the future. Um, we started the business in late 2017, and we were trying to do fundraising during 2018 and 19, and we were almost laughed out of court because nobody believed that you know we could do traceability or that technology was capable of you know knitting together supply chains to create that visibility of raw materials. It was only really in 2020 when our clients 
uh, strategic investors chose to invest in us because they, they saw the benefit that was being driven through um, the way they were using the platform to give them visibility to the supply chain, to give them that narrative and the confidence to talk to their suppliers, even right down to being able to demonstrate with confidence the fact that no human, no human rights were being infringed or child labour wasn't being used in the supply chain. That led to a very different discussion during um, 21 when we landed our first Series A funding. And over that period, I think, and as, as well as that as well, there's been a confluence of policy, legislation, and um, consumer demand for a change in how um, corporates were being held to account. But equally, investors were also um, demanding of their investee companies a change in how they were able to demonstrate funding. And this year, we have been inundated with investors, which is, which is fantastic because now climate tech investors are really looking at what's already been proven, what can we do more with more money and how fast can we grow? So effectively, we're now having to turn the opposite way, which is choosing the right investors for us that will become partners longer term. I was just going to say, I completely agree with Vera and just, just, just thinking back five years ago, we were trying to use imagery and AI, ultimately to use less chemicals, but from satellites. And that was a hard sell on sustainability terms. Um, the pendulum has swung completely in the opposite direction, which is that, you know, if you're Nestle or PepsiCo or General Mills or whoever it is, your, your own shareholders are now demanding that, you know, not you're measuring and you're monitoring everything that you use and that all feeds into the narrative. So it's kind of gone in the opposite direction, but it really was very difficult at the beginning. That is really interesting. And from that kind of customer acquisition perspective, um, obviously, do you consider climate and emissions reduction as a byproduct of your services? Or do you see that as really core to the offering? And uh, what is it that customers are looking for? And how kind of present is that climate conversation in your initial talks? So I guess from, I guess from Circular's perspective, it, it, it is absolutely centre stage. So we usually start a conversation around either getting visibility of the supply chain or um, understanding where the scope three emissions are being inherited. And that automatically leads to you know, the debates around sustainability, demonstrating with proof the, um, the way in which organisations and their supply chain participants are supporting the climate action goals and the extent to which they can collaborate to make more change happen. So we're absolutely sensitive of each of those conversations. Where that goes quite often varies from organization to organization. I'll give you an example. So Polestar want to, want to trace all of the materials going into the entirety of their car so that by 2030, they can demonstrate with proof that they're building the net zero car of the future. With British Vault, for example, we're tracing all of the raw materials going into construction. So the green steel, the concrete, the amalgam, the, you know, the heating, the energy, the carbon emission footprint of the staff and supplies coming on site. So they have the entire DNA footprint and carbon footprint of the facility before they even go into the traceability of their lithium ion batteries. So different organizations are tackling it very differently, but the end outcome is still um, how do we achieve net zero and how do we collaborate to do it together? Thank you. And um, Will, as, as, as an investor um, yourself, you've invested in, in multiple um, 
clean tech startups. How do you see that going post COP26? Do you feel this is going to be something that only goes bigger? Um, do you see those companies scaling at the rate which they want to? Hope, hopefully better than before, but no, only joking, some of mine have gone well and, and the rest are doing well. Um, it, it does take time though, and I think if you're investing in bioplastics or hydrogen or nuclear or electric vehicles, these are massive, massive challenge sets where you often you often need science underpinning the, the, the venture itself. And you're not going to make a quick buck on something that is trying to undo 200 years of industrialization, right? Which is what the name of the game is. So I think that COP26 has given... Um, the right tailwind and the right narrative for growth, but we still need we still need more steps in the right direction. In Hummingbird's sense, there are a couple of couple of very specific important regulation pledge in particular, which is targeting upstream agricultural commodities. Quite literally, we measure the change in land use from you know forest to crops and what crop is there. So there are a few that I give us an injection straight away. And for my other investee companies, I think they've all been helped by it, um, but just others more than the rest. And um, Vera, what do you see as the sort of biggest opportunities for those in the kind of clean tech startup game? Sure, great question. I, I think there's probably two things that I see. One is the ability to, even as a, even as a startup, the um, ability to give corporates the um, innovation from outside because it drives change faster. And therefore the narrative is much, much easier to have now, more so than even five, 10 years ago. That's one thing. The second is that from a, from a, a digitization perspective, the clean tech companies have the strongest ability to drive the digitization of those supply chains much more acutely and be very much data driven. And it's those data points that I think will actually help drive some of those um, narratives and conversations, particularly in terms of influencing policymakers as well. Thank you very much. Brad Townsend, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. And you guys have got two fantastic businesses, um, both Keen Tech UK members, both great contributors to our report, Climate Tech, The Innovators, which looks at the highest potential technologies for helping reach net zero. So. Thank you very much for your time and best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So the next section is with Matt Houlihan from Cisco. Matt is a well-established Tech UK member sitting on a number of committees. Uh, I suspect listeners of the Tech UK podcast would have heard of Cisco. Um, but if I could just ask you, Matt, to introduce yourself and a quick introduction to Cisco. Hey, thanks, Craig. Yeah, so I'm Matt Houlihan. I head up um, government and corporate affairs at Cisco in the UK and Ireland. So look after all of the sort of political and policy relationships we have with um, uh, with, with governments and policymakers across those two uh, countries. And as you said, and people will be familiar with with Cisco, but we're you know, we, we often describe ourselves as the company that helped build the internet in that we provide a lot of the technology and a lot of the infrastructure that any company or public sector organization or 
or educator needs to get online and to and to make the digitization work. And we have a whole range of products and services in that space uh, and serve companies from the very smallest to the very, very biggest, um, as well as public sector too. So very wide ranging. Cool. Thank you. So um, how is sustainability and climate related issues uh, viewed within Cisco? Yeah, so we've we've had we've actually had a, a, a really good long track record on this. And uh, we've been setting um, science based sustainability targets as a company for about 20 years now, uh, believe it or not. But um, we've really noticed, you know, as I think the whole sector has, just how much it's risen up the agenda uh, over the past uh, few years. Um, so whereas before we were focusing on things like, you know, um, uh, our, our sites in terms of shifting to renewable energy and reducing wastewater and trying to reduce package, uh, you know, the, the amount of um, uh, packaging that we that we use. Um, we've, we've really accelerated how we thought about sustainability as a company. Um, so firstly, back in September this year, 2021, we made a, a very ambitious uh, net zero commitment. So we're going to be net zero by 2040 across all, all three scopes. And as an interim step, uh, on scope one to two, we're going to be net zero by 2025. So we're really pushing ourselves um, on, on that front. And then secondly, we're, we're having obviously to do a lot of thinking about how we get there. And that's really driving conversations in Cisco and really driving ambition in terms of every aspect of our operation. Thank you, Matt. So you guys were present at COP26. I think you're a partner of COP26. What was your reflections? I know you were there. Um, so what was your reflections from the conference and what kind of tech companies take away from it? Yeah, so I was, uh, I mean, I was delighted to be able to go up to Glasgow and, and sort of see it firsthand and, and be and be part of what felt like a like a historic moment. You know, the, the whole world's attention was on Glasgow uh, for those two weeks, and it was great to be part of that. Cisco played, I mean, Cisco played a small but um, hopefully important role in that we provided a lot of the um, the IT infrastructure and uh, you know, the Wi-Fi. And um, our WebEx platform to allow people to take part in the in the talks from wherever they were around the world if they weren't able to travel to Glasgow. So um, we we were proud to be able to contribute to you know, hopefully the most sort of technologically advanced talks uh, uh, that have that have been, but also the most inclusive as well. So that was um, that was great to be part of. Being there was fantastic. It was such an obviously a, uh, an international event, and you really felt that walking around. Just you know. Uh, different languages um, from all all around the world, which is great to be part of, um, and such a bustling, um, energetic environment to be in as well. Wherever you looked, there were different conversations taking place on some different aspect of uh, of climate change, and it was um, it was really wonderful to see the passion and see the engagement from so many different uh, communities. Just a, a couple of thoughts, Craig, on some other aspects of it. I, I've never felt businesses driving a conversation around sustainability so much as I've seen in um, uh, in, in Glasgow during those two weeks. I felt businesses were very present. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a business-focused conference, although the private sector clearly has a role to play, but um, but but businesses were there and were, were leading the conversations in many respects. Um, so that was uh, that was brilliant to see. And then I think there's a lot of, you know, in terms of the substance of what was agreed, there will be a lot of um, takeaways for the tech sector as well as for you know for all all businesses um in that you know we're going to see those high level agreements filter down into national strategies for reducing emissions which is going to filter down into very specific um requirements um very specific actions that companies um 
and everyone in, in, in all of these countries will have to take. And so over time, I feel that, you know, as a sector, we're going to um, see that more and more. But also, and we can come on to this, as a sector, we can play a really uh, strong role in helping everyone else get there. Because I'm, really, I'm a really firm believer that technology has got a very strong role to play in enabling other companies and other other organisations to be sustainable. Cool, we certainly echo that. And yeah, going up there, you could really tell that Glasgow was up for hosting this. Um, it really did kind of feel that the cities really embraced it, which was which was sort of really cool. Um, so see, Cisco's a kind of large global business. So how much of a challenge uh, was it to um, sort of get sort of that global alignment on a net zero one? Obviously, Cisco had huge presence all over the world. So how much of a challenge was it to set a net zero target and set those interim measures? Yeah, so some aspects of it were were reasonably straightforward. Although, you know, I'm not gonna um, I'm not gonna try and pretend it's any of it's easy. But in that we we'd already made quite a lot of progress on, especially on things like shifting to renewables, which you know, in countries like the UK and the US, we're already at 100% renewable energy use for our for our sites, which is great. And so, continuing on that path, you know, we we've, we've got a good track record on how to do that and in um uh, in other countries we're moving towards that as well so on, on on certain things like that we'd already made progress and we'd already made great progress on things like you know removing um co2 from our uh, supply chain removing um um virgin plastic from our um fr fr from our operations and, and reducing reducing packaging as well so tons of progress which created a lot of momentum the really hard bit for a company like cisco though and where we're where we're we are making progress, but there's a lot to do is around how customers, so our the businesses and public sector organizations and everyone else who uses Cisco hardware, um, the energy that goes into the, the the electricity that goes through those systems and the um, the emissions that that accounts for. And so the challenge for us is how do we make our kit as sustainable as possible in that how do we make it as energy efficient as possible and that's where the focus goes because when we look at the entirety of scope one to three emissions the majority the vast majority is actually in that scope three bit and, and the vast majority of those are in the energy that our our kit uses in all of those customer locations around the world and so that's the real focus and so you know we, we're going to put a lot of effort we are putting a lot, lot of effort into um uh, how we uh, how we get there uh, just recently, we uh, produced um, a new, um, it's the 8000 series of uh, Cisco routers, um, which have some phenomenal stats around how energy efficient they are. Um, and we've got a great case study that we released just a couple of uh, weeks ago about Deutsche Telekom, um, who are deploying these routers um, right now and are delivering uh, something like a 92% reduction in energy use to deliver the same amount of throughput um, on its uh, on, on one of its networks, which is just the which is brilliant to see, and it's that sort of level of ambition that we need to push right across the the the, the customer base now. Thank you. Yeah, we have um, definitely sort of noted the improvements in sort of server and routing technology. That just the amount of efficiency, the amount of sort of circularity built in is actually you know, mind-boggling compared to even just a few years ago. Um, so, so you're you're a UK representative of a global organisation that has a very large of 
uh, footprint across kind of the world's sort of IT estate. So how how does a sort of national entity fit into the wider picture? So obviously, if you're getting pressure from the UK on whether that's a, a new regulatory issue around sustainability, um, or if indeed another country is, how can a national part of a business actually impact the the global whole? Yeah, well, I think sustainability is a great example of how that can happen because. Actually, a lot of the conversations globally around sustainability in the company have emanated from the UK because it's in, it's actually in the UK where um, maybe I'm biased, but it's in the UK where I think we see um, most of that conversation being driven, whether it's by government and um, because of you know uh, procurement rules that we all know have sort of come in uh, recently, um, uh, driving providers to be more sustainable. Whether it's you know private sector customers who uh, are very, very active and increasingly active in terms of demanding from their suppliers like Cisco uh, that that, uh, that we step up to the plate and really help them on their sustainability journey. Um, whether it's on things like you know transparency, we're going to see that coming in um, uh, in in, in you know, quite deeply over the next uh, few years as well. About how how transparent we are about uh, all the data that we um, that we collect around our sustainability and how we publish that, and we're, you know we're we're doing that already, but. Um, there's going to be a, a lot of focus on that. But all of that to say that the UK, you know, whether it's through government regulation or government as a customer or private sector customers, actually drives a lot of the um, the, the conversation around sustainability. And it was, you know, m my role in all of this was to translate all of that and make sure that, you know, our folks around the world who deal, deal with sustainability and drive our strategy around that, whether it's from a, you know, a, a workplace resources point of view in terms of Cisco sites, or whether it's from an engineering point of view in terms of, you know, reaching those fantastic um, uh, levels of energy efficiency I just talked about, uh, but everyone un understands that this is a very quickly moving um, uh, environment that we're in. Um, sorry, sorry for the pun, uh, and that we need to uh, that we need to step up to it. And, and the UK has driven that, so it's a it's a great example of where a country like the UK uh, can really drive global change in a company like ours. I think you have touched on elements that um, other contributors to the podcast did, which is customers driving sort of change within the organizations. So what kind of questions um, are the customers asking when it comes to yeah, energy efficiency or circular economy or indeed your wider decarbonization efforts? Yeah, so customers are really, really you know, got a strong appetite right now for um, for sustainability and, and it's growing. And, we're, you know, we're just so pleased that we that we're in a good place to, to help them. So, yeah, certainly interested in um, the nuts and bolts of energy efficiency, and you know, obviously that's that's important for for customers. But I think the really exciting agenda is those sort of really creative conversations about how um, technology, whether that's um, IoT or whether that's uh, um, platforms like you know WebEx that offer virtual um, meetings, um, or whether it's um, you know any, any number of other types of technology, how they can be leveraged to kind of reinvent business processes and reinvent the way that businesses do things to become you know, not only more productive and efficient, but critically much more sustainable as well. Um, you know, all of these customers have shareholders and employees and customers that they are answering to, and they all want to do the right thing by them. And so uh, they're, they're looking at this from lots of different angles and, uh, and uh, you know, I'm pleased that we're able to help them. Thanks for that, Matt. Just the final question is, what do you think the sort of biggest tech sustainability trend is going to be in the next kind of year or two as we sort of move away from cop 26 well look, i i think the the sector's got a a great opportunity here in terms of 
communicating really clearly uh, with governments, with media, with customers about the role that, that our technology as a, as a wide sector can play in transforming the UK economy more generally. And so what I'd love to see is much more focus on, um, on, on the role that the sector can play in enabling the whole economy uh, to make that transition to being uh, net zero. Um, so I think the trend there is, you know, more noise around the role that technology can play, but but crucially more substance as well. So we need many more case studies. We need to be talking about it constantly. Uh, uh, it, it, the, the many manifold ways of you know, technology um, helping businesses and public sector organisations and and individuals doing things much more uh, sustainable sustainably. So I'd I'd say that's a that's a sort of broad trend I'd love to see more of. Well, thank you very much, Matt, for your time. And that concludes the Tech UK podcast. Um, keep an eye on techuk.org or at techuk on Twitter or techuk on LinkedIn for further content and information about our work on climate. So thank you very much, everyone.